Good morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 45, 9 through 25. I encourage you that if you do not have a Bible in front of you, please, I invite you to do that on page 606, where you could use your iPhone. Before we look at God's Word together, please join me in prayer. God, you are our Creator and our Savior. Would all of us turn to you for salvation? Would your name be glorified? Help us understand your text. In Christ's name, amen. My son Owen loves to play with trucks. He lines them all up in precisely the way he wants them to. He sets up roads and tunnels for a couple of the cars to drive through. Oftentimes, he doesn't like it when I go in there and move one of his trucks. See, in his mind, these are his toys, and he can play with them in any way he sees fit. In our passage this morning, we will see that God has made the world. He owns it, and he can do with it as he sees fit. The good news is that unlike my son and all of us, God always has good purposes. This week's passage continues the theme from last week. God would use Cyrus for his purposes. But at the time, in Isaiah's day, this might make some feel uncomfortable. How can God use a pagan king? Why is he doing it this way? Why not rise up a king after the line of David to bring deliverance? Remember, last week we saw that Isaiah predicted that Judah would end up in exile by the Babylonians. This would involve suffering. And then God would use a pangid king to bring Judah home. And on top of all of that, God was governing all of this. The well-being and the calamity. Some may want to sit over God as judge as they question God's ways. Isaiah warns against this prideful spirit, and he urges his readers that instead of sitting over God as judge, that those who humbly sit under him and his ways will be saved. So here's our big idea this morning. God has the world in his hands, So turn to him for salvation. God has the world in his hands. So turn to him for salvation. It is my prayer and hope that you would behold and delight in the glorious reality of the sovereignty of God as you embrace him in faith. Let's now spend some time digging into our first main point together. God has the world in his hands. Isaiah shows us that the world is in God's hands in six different ways. Let's start by looking at three pieces of evidence that the world is in God's hands. We're going to look at those first three ways in verses 9 through 13. First, Isaiah paints a portrait to demonstrate that the world is in God's hands in verses 9 and 12. I mean, 9 through 10. Look with me at verse 9. 
Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen vessels? Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. He begins in verse 9 with the word woe. Right off the bat, he gives us a picture of those who are in a bad place. This word woe carries the idea of imminent doom, judgment, wrath. Isaiah gets us going by describing the state of a certain type of person. Well, who is this person? Well, look back at verse 9 with me. It's those who strive with him who formed him. Imagine looking into a room full of pots, and many of these pots are striving against who, who made them. Isaiah says that those who are doing this are not in a good place. Isaiah next drives home the idea that the creation has no right to strive against its creator. Does that which is created strive with its creator? Envision how absurd it would be if the pot in the picture just starts questioning the maker. According to verse 9, the pot says things like, what are you making? And your work has no handles. The pot sitting as judge over its maker? The pot scrutinizing the maker for forming the pots? The pot is in no position to scrutinize its maker. It does not have this authority. So a pot is in no position to question its maker. Or put another way, the maker has every right to form the pot as he wishes. Isaiah highlights the idea that the creation has no right to strive against its creator, and he does so by giving us another picture in verse 10. Let's read that verse. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Just as the potter has authority over the clay, so parents have authority over their children. In general, one should not question this authority. Isaiah presents us with a reality from these pictures. The reality is what is known as the creator-creature distinction. It's a simple reality. God is the creator. We are the creation. As the creation, we're in no position to scrutinize our creator. We're in no position to sit over him as judge. We're in no position to criticize his ways. He is the creator, and we are the creature. Now let me be clear. Isaiah is not saying we could never ask God questions. Isaiah is not saying we can't cry out to God when we are in pain. We get several of those examples in Scripture. Rather, he's warning us of a certain type of attitude, an attitude that forgets that God is the creator and we are the creatures, one that ignores the truth that God has authority over all of creation, a spirit that sits over God as judge as it scrutinizes his ways. In these two verses, we see that God holds the world in his hand 
just as a potter holds a pot in his. Second, the world is in God's hands because he is sovereign over what he created. He is sovereign over what he created. In verses 11 and 12, we see that reality. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Let's point out how God is described. Verse 11 says that he is the Holy One of Israel. Right? God is the Holy One. He's in a class by himself. He is utterly unique. He is transcendent. God is morally pure. So this God who is utterly unique and morally pure formed Israel. God is like the potter over the clay. He formed them. He gave them life. He called them to be a nation. He has authority over the world he has made. Now in the rest of verse 11, God challenges his people to ask him about the future. God says, Will you give me orders? Don't neglect the fact, Israel, that you were formed and sustained by me. Will you give me orders about how I govern the universe? Not only did God form Israel, God also made the earth. All of humanity owes their existence to God, as verse 12 spells out clearly for us. God made the earth. He owns it so he can do with it as he sees fit. God has authority and governs the earth. It's God who governs the world and not the world that governs God. Third, we see that the world is in God's hands because he governs King Cyrus. He governs King Cyrus. Verse 13, referring to Cyrus here. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God has the king's heart in his hands. The extent of God's sovereignty and his sovereign hand and authority reaches even to kings says that God has stirred him up, and God is acting righteously and steering him up. He's being faithful to his word and his ways, and he has stirred him up. All his ways will be level. God oversaw the, the ways of Cyrus, and what do these ways include? Well, Cyrus would rebuild Israel. He would set the exiles free, and he would do it out of the desires of his own heart. Not for some benefit. He just did it because he felt like it. He wanted to. But God oversaw all of these ways, which shows that the king's heart is in the Lord's hand. Now imagine going to a restaurant, and as you sit down, the waiter starts giving you orders. 
I'll have a water and a, a steak medium rare, please. And then walks off. We would think this is a really weird restaurant. Right? That's not how it works. Our text says we don't have authority over God. That's not how it works. God has authority over us. In terms of application and response, we've been thinking about this idea of the simple truth known as the creator-creature distinction. God is the creator, has authority over everything, governs the earth, And we are creatures, and we have no authority over God. This truth can be undermined in several ways, this creator-creature distinction. Let's think through just some of them. The The first way that this can be undermined is that we don't like what God says. That's what we see here right in our text. The people didn't like that God would use Cyrus to accomplish his purpose. Where might we be prone to do this? Maybe it's the idea of hell. Maybe we don't like something the Bible says because it keeps us from doing something we really think is fun. Maybe We may be doing this if we skip over some parts of the Bible because we don't like it. It convicts us. But God is the creator, and we are the creation. God's word and his ways are true and good, even if we don't like what it says. The problem is us, not God's word. The second way this might be undermined is if we want to decide for ourselves what is morally right and wrong. We want to be the final authority in our lives. We want to decide what is morally right and wrong. One way our culture does this is by saying that each person gets the freedom to decide their own sexuality. Saying that sex outside of marriage or homosexual relationships are permissible and permittable. It's not what God's word says, right? God is the creator and is the standard of all moral truth. He is the creator and we are creatures. God's standards of moral truth are good and we flourish when we abide by them. The third way that it could be undermined is if we reject God's words and ways as being foolish. For example, the people of Noah's day thought the idea of a flood was foolish. They thought they knew better than God, and so they continued in their own way. But God's ways are higher than our ways. Just because we don't understand something about God and his ways doesn't mean it's not true. God is our creator, and his ways are right. So let's remember that God is the master craftsman, and we are the clay. Would we continue to cherish all that God's word says, even the hard parts? Let's be a pillar and buttress of the truth as we hold our ground on moral standards and seek to live by them. God tells us what is right in matters pertaining to faith and life. Would we continue to cherish that wisdom comes from God's word and from fearing him? And let's be humble, knowing our place, knowing that our knowledge is finite. Would we be able to proudly say what Isaiah 64, 8 says? But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. 
You are our potter, and we are the work of your hands. We've seen the first three pieces of evidence that the world is in God's hand. Let's now see the other three pieces of evidence, verses 14 through 17. Fourth, the world is in God's hands because he freely decides to save his people. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is none other, no God besides him. God's plan extends beyond the return of Israel from Cyrus. God's sovereign plan includes the salvation of many Gentiles. Verse 14 teaches that the nations will know the Lord. Continuing the flow of thought in verses 9 through 13, where God is compared to a potter, which demonstrated that he has authority over all he created, is the one who governs the world is the one who formed Israel and all of humanity is the one who directs the heart of Cyrus. Now our text says that many nations will come to know the Lord. This becomes clear when it says that the wealth of Egypt, Cush and the Sabaeans will come over to Israel. It says that they will be Israel's bow down to them and follow them. It says that they will come over in chains. Isaiah is simply using imagery to show that many nations will seek salvation. And we know this because in the rest of the verse, they say, surely God is in you. There is no other God besides you. Here in verse 14, we see that God's sovereign plan includes the salvation of many Gentiles. Fifth, the world is in God's hands because he is not obligated to save everyone or anyone. Verses 15 through 16. Truly, you are a God who hides himself O God of Israel, the Savior, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Starts off with a confession in, in verse 15. Your ways are hidden, O Lord. God of Israel, the Savior. This verse has created much discussion, but at a foundational le level, the meaning should cause one to worship. In context, we just saw that God will rise up Cyrus to bring Israel home. We saw that his plan included the salvation of many Gentiles. The way God goes about his purposes often seem counterintuitive to us. Right? The older will serve the younger. God will save the world through a servant. God will be glorified in salvation through judgment. So here, God's ways often seem hidden to us, counterintuitive. He would use Cyrus to bring Israel home, and many Gentiles would be saved. 
and then rejoicing in the fact that God is the one who saves. He is the Savior. Oh, what a precious truth. God is indeed a Savior, but he is not obligated to save anyone or everyone. We see this in verse 16, right? Those who make idols, who refuse the truths of God, will be put to shame. The idols and those who make them will be confounded. God is Savior, but he is not obligated to save those who continually refuse his way. He's not obligated to save those who rebel against him. Six, the world is in God's hands as he gives eternal life. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all of eternity. So although God is not obligated to save, he freely gives eternal life. And when God shows grace to people, in verse 17, it's Israel. In verse 14, it's the Gentiles. It says that it is God who saves them. It says they're saved by God. He's the one who does the saving. He's the one who goes out of his way to save a sinful people. And it says that they are saved eternally. It's not just for a moment and then gone. Lose salvation, get salvation, lose salvation. It's always. Unlike those who refuse God, they will not be put to shame or confounded. God gives eternal salvation to his people. Now, we just got back from a trip from Colorado. Weather's much nicer there. And while we were there, we went to the zoo, and both of our children were amazed at the penguin exhibit. I looked at them, and they had joy in their eyes. They were full of excitement. Now, as we think back on our Christian experience, we know that we have had seasons of joy in our eyes, full of excitement. But at other times, not so much. So as we think about application, may our hearts pour forth worship. God is sovereign over salvation. Although God is not obligated to save anyone, he freely gives eternal life to many. God is the creator, and we are the creatures. More specifically, God is the holy creator, and we are sinful beings. Oh, that a God freely chooses to save people. What truth hits us in the core more? That God does not save everyone, or that God chose to save anyone. What wondrous joy that God freely saves some sinful creature like you and me. Church, let's not grow cold to this truth. Let's ask God to stir our affections for him. He saved you so that you can enjoy him forever. Now keep these truths in mind. In, in Romans 9 through 11, God has authority over all of his creation. He governs the earth. 
He is God, and we are not. He can do with the earth as he sees fit, and he decides to save a people for himself. What a truth, knowing that a good and holy God always does what is right. Let this sit with you for a few moments. Left to ourselves, we all worship idols. Something we run to for ultimate security. Something we worship other than God. And our end would be shame. But God saves Jew and Gentile alike. And it's an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame. Everlasting. Eternal. Never put to shame. Oh, praise God that salvation is of the Lord because if it was not true, we would all perish. Oh, and how do these truths impact our daily lives? How does having assurance of this eternal life affect our daily lives? For one, as we meditate upon this truth, I pray our hearts would turn to worship God. One of the reasons I bring this up is because we talk about what we care about. If you want a more vibrant faith, a faith that is bold and daring, let's pray that our hearts would get a glimpse and delight in the God who saves. Let's be bold. We get to enjoy God forever. Everlasting joy, worshiping God, the best gift ever. Let's go and tell everyone, everywhere, about the God we worship. Let's tell them that they can join in us. They could join this with us. God is going to save a people. The outcome is going to happen. Gentiles are, God's going to save all of his people. Our text highlights this. Let's be bold and declare the gospel and all of its riches. This life is temporary. Let's prepare and live for eternity. And let's have hope. Those who turn to God will not be put to shame. It might not always feel like that. Others might tell us it's a shameful thing to be a Christian. Christian, you will not ultimately be put to shame. Let's have hope. One day, all of our sufferings and all of our trials will be no more. We will be with God. Keep pressing on through your suffering. So Isaiah has given us six pieces of evidence to show that the world is in God's hands. We will now see that people are called to turn to him for salvation. It's our second main point. Turn to God for salvation. Turn to God for salvation. We, we began in verse 18. For thus says the Lord... Who created the heavens? He is God. Who formed the earth and made it? He established it and did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. As is becoming increasingly more clear, our text is highlighting the fact that God is the creator of everything. And here in verse 18, we are given one of the reasons why he decided to create. He didn't create this world. 
to be empty. Rather, he created the world to be inhabited. As the master craftsman, he created the world and would have his people dwell in it. He created a people to live on earth to reflect his glory. And in verse 19, we see that God, as the creator, has chosen to reveal the way of salvation. In verse 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God did not speak in a secret in a land of darkness. In other words, God has spoken plainly, and he has spoken to a people. And God has, when he spoke, meant what he said. It's not an empty promise. He didn't say, seek me in vain. The world, the, the, the word to seek God is not empty. Just as God did not create the world to be empty, so his word is not empty. If you truly seek God, you will find him. You can take God at his word. He always declares what is right. And then in verses 20 through 21, Isaiah supplies evidence that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. In verse 20, God tells the people to come together and consider his ways. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Jews, Gentiles, all of you, come together. As a group, you can combine your your brain power to test my claims. This is what God says. Here's the thing you need to know as you consider my ways. That those who carry idols, they have no knowledge. Those who worship idols are praying to a God that cannot save. We resemble what we worship. And they were worshiping lifeless idols, and so we're lifeless. They're praying to an idol that they crafted with their own hands. So God challenges the people to present the case that their gods can save. Let them tell you about the future. Let them save you. And in verse 21, we see how God responds. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Was it your gods? Certainly not. Who declared it of old? Was it the gods? Certainly not. Who was it? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. God says, who told you about the events you're in? Who told you about the events you're going to face? And who told you this long before it even happened? Was it the idols? Your gods have not done it. They're mere creations. How could they? They can't. There is only one God as seen by the fact that only Yahweh told them about the future in mighty fine details. There is no other God. God is the only one who does these things. And and this God who has done these things is righteous. He always does what is right and good. There's no one else who can save. Quit praying to these idols who can't save. So in these verses in 19 through 21, we see that God 
is the creator of everything and has chosen to reveal the way of salvation. And he has shown that he can be trusted, that he is the one and only true God, for who else can describe the future in fine detail? So now in the rest of the text, we see in light of all this, he says, turn to God for salvation. He can be trusted for the world is in his hands. Drop down to verse 22 with me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. It says, turn to me and be saved. Turn from those things that cannot save you. Turning to God is the best thing for you because he can actually save you. And who is to turn? Who is this call given to? All the ends of the earth. God calls people from every nation to turn to him. People from all ethnicities, from all backgrounds. Not just for Israel, but for people over all of the world. God will save people from every nation. So turn to him, for he can truly save. And God guarantees this outcome in verse 23. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Here in this text, God swears by himself. There is no one greater to swear by. God is saying that if this does not happen, he cannot be God. But that is impossible. It's in God's nature. He is righteous. His word never returns back void. He cannot deny himself. What God says will happen. And what has God guaranteed? Every knee bow. Everyone will see the one and only God. And there's two types of people that will bow the knee. Verses 24 and 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So it's going to be those who bow the knee before the Lord. And they're going to be the ones who cried out to God in mercy. Who swear allegiance to God who have everlasting salvation. Those who not only assent to, but trust in the fact that it is only in the Lord that salvation is found. It's only those who are united to God by faith that will be saved. And they will confess and believe that God is a righteous God. He has planned salvation, worked it out, and is so full of strength. And then there's going to be another type of people who bow the knee. Those who are incensed against God. They're going to be the ones who are angry with God. Scrutinizing and criticizing his ways. And they will not come to him for everlasting salvation. But will be ashamed. They will be put to shame. And... What's going to be the response of those who are saved in in verse 25? Well, it says that they're going to be 
justified. They're going to be in a right relationship with God. They're going to be declared righteous. And what are they going to do? It says they shall glory. They will be filled with awe as they marvel at the God who saved them. Their response is joyful worship to a mighty God who delivered them. Now, if someone told you what would happen in your life in the next five years in great detail, and then it did happen, it happened exactly that way, we would be shocked. That person would have weight to what they said. Well, God told the people in Isaiah's day that Cyrus would send his people back home. But at this point, Judah was still living in the land. So Isaiah predicted that Judah would be in exile, that Cyrus would rise to power and send his people back home. And he told them this 100 plus years before any of this happened. And then it happened precisely in the ways described here. This carries weight. This shows that we can take God at his word. And his word says that only his way is the way of salvation. Our text has been emphasizing it, has it not? In Isaiah 45, 14, and verse 21, and verse 22, when we read all of the Bible together, the Bible makes clear that there's only one way to be saved. By grace, through faith. But there are counterfeit gospels. Ways many think salvation is gained. Here's a list of a few by trip and how people change. There's formalism. And I quote, I participate in the regular meetings of meetings and ministries of the church. So I feel like my life is under control. I'm always in church, but it really has little impact on my heart or how I live my life. I may become judgmental and impatient with those who do not have the same commitment as I do. Or there's legalism, which again, quote, I live by the rules. Rules I create for myself and rules I create for others. I feel good if I could keep my own rules and I become arrogant and full of contempt when others don't meet the standards I set for them. There is no joy in my life because there is no grace to be celebrated. And then there's biblicism. I know my Bible inside and out, but I do not let it master me. I have reduced the gospel to a mastery of biblical content and theology, so I am intolerant and critical of those with lesser knowledge. Yet here in God's word, it says, turn to me and be saved. Look, we are saved through faith. Forget those counterfeits, right? We are saved by knowing, trusting, depending upon, delighting in the revelation of who God is and what he says he is. We are saved by turning to God. This means that we turn from sin and we turn to God. We are not perfect. The path is bumpy, but we're persistent in our repentance. We seek to mend our ways by the grace of God to God's word. Those who believe and repent are saved. God's word says, who is this 
given to turn. Who's to turn? All of the ends of the earth. This means you out there who feel you are too sinful to be saved. You feel like you're too bad. That God would never want anything to do with you. Friend, God's grace shines brightly against the backdrop of your sin. No sin is too big for God not to forgive. God delights in sowing grace to the worst of sinners. But you may be thinking to yourself, you don't know me and what I've done, who I've been, and you're right. I don't know you and what you've done, but God does. And God's word says that Christ died for the worst of sins. And he says, turn to him and be saved. This means you out there who feel you are not sinful and so don't need salvation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Left to ourselves, we are headed to hell. If we are honest with ourselves, we know we aren't perfect. Lied, cheated, not loved God or others as we ought. See your need for salvation. Turn to God and be saved. This means you out there who think you are saved, but are not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand? Don't fool yourself. See your need for salvation. People are saved by grace through faith as, as they embrace and turn to God. Turn to God and be saved. This means you fourth through twelfth graders. Listen with me, fourth through twelfth graders. Have you made your faith your own? I'm sure you know the truths of the gospel, but are you convinced of it? Are you trusting in God for your salvation? You're not saved through your parents' faith, but through your own. Turn to God and be saved. This means you, fellow Christian, brothers and sisters, we don't outgrow our need for salvation, of turning to God every single day. If you are struggling with assurance, remember God's word. His word is never empty. He always keeps his word. His word is everlasting. He says that those, they, shall, they are justified. He promises that if you turn to him, you will be saved. You are in God's hands. Brothers and sisters, let's continue to have faith and repentance. Turn to God and be saved as you turn to him. And when you sin, let's continue to return to him. The reality is that every knee will bow. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2 and in our text. Every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Will you bow now and receive salvation? Or will you bow later and reap shame? As we close, let's remember our big idea. God has the world in his hands, so turn to him for salvation. Behold and delight in the glorious reality of the sovereignty of God as you embrace God in faith. Seek God and live. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word, that you are our creator, and that the world and your people are in your hands. Oh Lord, would we be humbled by the truth that you are God and we are not. Help us continually bow the knee before you as we seek to conform our lives to your word and trust in the way your finished, accomplished work on the cross, O Lord. Please be with us this week. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.